Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology. I'm your host, Aliza Arıcan. Today, I'm joined by Christopher Loperena, Associate Professor of Anthropology at the Graduate Center, City University of New York. We will be talking about his book, The Ends of Paradise, Race, Extraction, and the Struggle for Black Life in Honduras, published in 2022 by Stanford University Press. Thank you very much, Chris, for joining us today. Thank you. So in the New Books Network, we often start our episodes by getting to know our authors. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how did you conceive of this book? Sure, that's a a great starting point. Thank you for the question. Uh, Well, I'm Chris Loperena, and of course, um, I'm trained as a cultural anthropologist. And I received my PhD from the University of Texas at Austin where I was in the African diaspora and activist anthropology programs. And that's really significant for my own um, training and trajectory as an anthropologist, which I'll circle back to at some point, I'm sure, in the course of our conversation today. Um, But the way that I came to this book is actually quite a long uh, history. It it started um, as um, when I was an undergraduate student at the University of Chicago, and I formed a small not-for-profit organization in collaboration with some of my fellow uh, University of Chicago friends and colleagues. Um, and it was an organization that was um, developed in part as a result of one of our members' work in Honduras. Um, and this, this individual, his name is Matt, went down to Honduras and worked with uh, with COPIN, which is the Consejo Cívico de Organizaciones Populares Indígenas de Honduras, the Civic Council of Popular and Indigenous Organizations of Honduras, that was then under the leadership of um, a very celebrated Lenca activist and human rights defender by the name of Berta Cáceres. Um, Berta Cáceres, um, some of you, some of your listeners may know, uh, was subsequently um, assassinated in March 2016 in part for her efforts to defend Lenca territory. But I went down with, with my, my college friends and with our organization, Rising Roots International, in 2003 to work with Copin and to work alongside Berta Cáceres. And that was just this really transformative political education for me. Um, I had been studying anthropology and political science and studying Latin America um, through the framework of human rights Uh, for the previous years as a student, but having this sort of on-the-ground experience and working with such a visionary leader, um, an organization like Colpin, really changed the trajectory of of my future um, studies and also my life. And so after that uh, initial experience working with Colpin, I was there for about six months, um, I came to know the work of Ofrane, which is the Organización Fraternal Negra Hondureña, or the Black Fraternal Organization of Honduras. 
um, and their struggle on the Caribbean coast of Honduras. Um, and I, you know, I decided that this was something that I was really interested in continuing to study and to understand. And I then went to graduate school at the University of Texas at Austin. And part of the reason why I was drawn to UT Austin was because of their strength in Latin American studies, but also because they had this politically engaged activist research agenda um, and program in place that I thought would be one way for me to combine my political and academic interests. And so um, that led me back to Honduras and to this particular research, which resulted in this book project. Yeah, thanks for sharing this path. And, you know, having read the book, I can say that it comes across very clearly that it's not just, you know, an intellectual project, but very much a political project. And, you know, I think your scholarships really makes um, a case for these two to be interlinked. So having said that, I want to jump into the book. Um, So... You know, one thing that struck me throughout the book was how you show us that progress through tourism in Triunfo hinges on racialized extractivism. So can you speak more about what's at stake in making the links between progress, racialization, and extractivism explicit for both you and your political collaborators? Absolutely. And, you know, I want to start by saying that these links between racialization, extractivism and and progress, these are these these links and connections were being theorized by my um, friends and colleagues in Honduras. They were actively thinking through the connections and how extractivism was leading not only to the dispossession of their lands, but also um, their displacement uh, from their uh, territories along the Caribbean coast of Honduras. So, of course, we know that progress has long been used as a ruse to garner support for status development projects and elite strategies for economic growth. Um, it's also an ideology that's crucially bound to ratio-spatial imaginaries of uplift. And in the context of Latin America, this is very important to ideologies of whitening or blanqueamiento. So positioning race at the center of my exploration of how progress was conceived of and deployed concretely in Honduras and its articulation with broader political economic formations allowed me to reframe my engagement with the history of the region and more specifically with extractivism. So, of course, Honduras, like many of the other countries in in Central America, was a site for economic experimentation and extractivist activities throughout the, you know, throughout its colonial history and also through the early national period. And we see this really in really explicit uh, terms on the Caribbean coast of Honduras, which is the native territory of of the Garifuna. This is their... uh, ancestral lands, and uh, those lands were very important for the development of banana plantations uh, under the guise of U.S. multinational corporations at the end of the the 19th century and into the 20th century, and now for tourism development. And so 
what we see happening, and also African Palm, I want to mention that as well, which is something I talk about in my book. Uh, it would, that is the probably one of the largest uh, industries underway on the Caribbean coast today. But what we see happening is that Garifuna land, water, forests, and now even their culture are crucial input, inputs for the advancement of this economic agenda, this extractivist economic agenda, and for the obtainment of progress for national elites and uh, international investors. And these processes are what are leading to the transmutation of these life-giving communal resources into commodities, which become ripe for extraction and wealth creation. Absolutely. And, you know, also in the ends of paradise, you show us that racialized extractivism promises inclusion, but a very particular kind of inclusion, right? Uh, for example, this inclusion relies on particular imaginations of the Garifuna and their blackness, silencing their indigeneity and relegating them to an otherware in your words. So... Um, what is the political significance of conditioning inclusion in this way throughout the contestations over a three and false future? Yes, that's a that's a really excellent question, and it's uh, you know this there's a this paradox that I was really grappling with when I started my work on the Caribbean coast with Garifuna communities, and that is that Garifuna are the face of the Caribbean tourism industry in Honduras. They're the representatives of this authentic, you know, so-called authentic Caribbean culture. And yet their blackness stands exterior to or in, in tension with sort of the spatial and boundaries of the sovereign nation. Um, blackness is positioned as exterior to the Honduran nation. And, and there are many um, authors that have written about this before me, historians such as Dario Eurake and Suyapa Portillo, who are thinking about that kind of racial project, specifically of mestizaje, right, um, and its relationship to uh, indigenous and black peoples. And so in the context of Honduras, what's really important to um, note is that mestizaje in Honduras is a little bit distinct than it is in other Latin American contexts. Um, In Honduras, mestizaje is specifically thought of as Indo-Hispanic racial mixture. So indigenous and European racial mixture, which leads to sort of the modern mestizo citizen subject. It is exclusive of blackness. It's a formation that's exclusive of blackness. And this is distinct from a place like Puerto Rico or perhaps Colombia, where there are larger black populations and where the concept of mestizaje may include blackness, although, of course, always in a way that positions it Um, at the bottom of sort of the social and racial hierarchy within those um, contexts. So um, the the, the project of mestizaje was formed in opposition to Black presence in Honduras. And this is important to note because Garifuna were in Honduras prior to the formation of the modern nation state prior to Honduras's independence from Spain 
1823. So Garifuna, of course, identify as Black and Indigenous, and this is something I, I can touch on more in our conversation. Um, and they have been present in Honduras since the late 1700s. But in spite of this historical presence, and in spite of their claims to uh, territory on the Caribbean coast, the Honduran state has repeatedly said these people are not legitimate heirs to the lands that they claim, that they're essentially foreigners or recent arrivants. They've been called allegados, which is to say arrivants in Honduras, by the mestizo state. And so we see that the, the, the Black population is constantly positioned not only as a threat to the state, but in, uh, as exterior too. Uh, and this has all sorts of implications for their ability to claim the resources within their territories and to have autonomy and sovereignty over those resources. Um, so even though, to get back to the start of the question, even though Garifuna folklorically become the representatives of the Caribbean tourism market and tourism offering, they are constantly undermined as rightful heirs to the lands that they claim. And this um, is something that I was really curious about exploring in, in my book, in which I do quite extensively in the second chapter. Um, so that inclusion is very tenuous. That folkloric inclusion is very tenuous uh, and in, in many ways is predicated on exclusion. Um, and so that's one of the paradoxes that I wanted to work with. The other thing that I think is really important to note here is that it was with the rise of multicultural reforms in the 1990s in particular that Garifuna become recognized as a kind of distinct ethnic group. So they are one of the officially recognized ethnic groups in Honduras. That's the language that the Honduran state uses, grupos etnicos. Um, but they are not considered to be indigenous. They are considered to be Afro-descendants or a distinct kind of cultural ethnic people, but not indigenous. And so another thing that we've seen happen is that the Garifuna are positioned in a way that places them in tension or conflict with other indigenous peoples. And that's had political implications for some of their struggles. And that's one of the forms of, uh, po of political contestation that they've had to engage in, which is say, no, we are indigenous. And that the, the reason why we're being positioned as non-indigenous is because of the sort of anti-blackness that exists within Honduras. Yeah, thanks so much for pointing that out. And I think, you know, throughout the book, the complexity of, you know, multiple levels of tension really come across in terms of blackness and indigeneity. And my next question um, will, you know, try to tackle that, I guess. Um, so, you know, something I found really compelling was how you show us that you know, in a way, Garifuna mobilized around the future, right? The future or who gets to belong in the future or have stakes in the future is, um, you know, a foundational way in which they engage with politics. But also in the book, we see that, um, you know, visions around Garifuna futures are fractured and they cause debate among Garifuna around blackness and indigeneity. So then, can you tell us more about how 
um, these fractures happen and how they reflect back on blackness and indigeneity? Yes. Um, so that actually becomes a pretty significant part of the story that uh, I'm telling in this book, because the community in which I worked and did the majority of my ethnographic research is the community of Triunfo de la Cruz, and it's in the region of Tela. And Tela is uh, kind of ground zero for the implementation of the tourism agenda along the entire Caribbean coast of Honduras. There's a very large so-called ecotourism resort that has been constructed on lands that Garifuna claim as part of their ancestral territory in the Tela region and the community of Tornade specifically, um, and on lands that are actually protected. These are protected wetlands, and somehow the Honduran state was still able to go forward Um, of course, with the funding of international financial institutions and build this large eco-resort that has an 18-hole golf course and, you know, all the the bells and whistles that you might imagine would be at a very fancy resort. Um, And so that becomes, that project in some ways becomes a representative of what progress can be vis-a-vis tourism development on the Caribbean coast. And it's a beautiful project in some ways. Um, and, you know, the landscape, it, the landscaping for the project is, is quite stunning. And the geographic um, location is really unique. It's on this sandbar between the ocean and a lagoon. And it's just a really stunning landscape. And the project is meant to sort of blend in with that landscape. And in some ways, it's been celebrated as a successful um, eco-resort. But of course, the implementation of the project was contingent on the dispossession of Garifuna lands. The only way that the project could be created was by taking those lands which Garifuna have historically held in common and which were fundamental for their own subsistence practices, cultural and spiritual practices. These tensions and conflicts over land are playing out in all five Garifuna communities in the Talabe region and in many of the other Garifuna communities along the Caribbean coast of Honduras and also on the Bay Islands in Roatan. Those lands are now some of the most coveted lands, and part of the reason why they're so coveted is because of the tourism industry and the potential to build more resorts like the one we see in Tornabe. That resort uh, is called the Indura Beach and Golf Resort. It's a very seductive project, and it's a very seductive proposition. And some Garifuna are actually interested in seeing tourism come to the community and seeing tourism jobs be created so that Garifuna youth can have employment and stable jobs, which currently really don't exist. There's only really informal employment opportunities within the communities. There aren't a lot of industries uh, that are thriving within these communities. So tourism sort of becomes a ticket uh, for people to be able to achieve certain forms of economic stability or progress. Um, And that, of course, leads to fracturing, right? With the Indura Beach and Gulf Resort, the state and the international financial institutions and the private investors 
promised the community the world. They said, we're going to come in, we're going to pave the roads, we're going to create potable water, we're going to create electric lines. These are all things that people desired widely, but it creates fractured politics because some people were unwilling to let go of their collective rights to that territory in order to achieve those so-called promised uh, benefits or progress. And so in Triumphal, there was a very strong um, divide among two political factions, one that was very much trying to defend the ancestral and communal property rights of the community, and not only defend them, but to recuperate lands that have been privatized through illegal means. And the other one was more aligned with the municipal government and state proposals to bring tourism to the area. And I think it would be too simplistic to say that one was pro-tourism and one was anti-tourism. No, because the the group that was fighting to defend ancestral communal property rights wasn't anti-tourism. They were anti the type of tourism that would lead to the, to the dispossession of their lands and possibly to their displacement. They were anti the type of tourism that requires the infill of protected wetlands, that requires ecological destruction, that requires the formation of private property within an area that, again, those lands were, were historically held in common. So these are some of the sign of fractured politics that emerge. But in the background, of course, is this, this kind of hope and anticipation for what tourism can bring. And some of the community youth really did think, okay, I'm going to study tourism, I'm going to study English, and that's going to be my, my, my ticket to have a job or to be able to participate in these emerging economic formations. And so there were also kind of intergenerational conflicts, you know. Um, it, importantly, Garifuna women and Garifuna elders were really at the forefront of the, of the land defense movement. And many community youth participated in that too. But because of these sometimes fractured politics around development, around tourism, around progress, you also sometimes had intergenerational conflicts playing out, right? Around these kind of conflicting visions of what was possible, what futures were potentially possible for Triunfo de la Cruz, and if those futures that we might deem to be um, progress necessitated forfeiting the ancestral rights that the community held to those lands and the and, and forests and water. I'm so glad you brought up you no know, lands and women often being at the center of um, defending land. Um, because, you know, throughout the book, one person that really su- stuck with me was Doña Gloria. And, you know, she really provokes us to think about land and futurity hand in hand as, you know, the object of the politics that they're pursuing. So what is at stake in relating to the land through the future and relating to the future through land? Thank you. That's a that's an excellent question, and I'm glad that you brought up Doña Gloria. Uh, she that interview uh, really stuck with me as well, and I knew that I would have to write about her comments and in, in, in my book project. 
Um, so you're referring to this, um, Doña Gloria was a, a community elder and um, a midwife in the Garifuna tradition. And you're referring to this moment in which she describes a practice in which Garifuna buried the placenta after the baby is born. They bury the placenta in the land. Now, this is a practice that, of course, is not exclusive to Garifuna. You see this in other uh, cultures and other regions of the world. But what she illustrates is really powerful. And in her discussion, she makes it clear that this practice is about creating a particular spiritual connection to the land and between the present, future, and past inhabitants of that land. Um, And it's not just that, though. It is also about social reproduction. And this is really important because the land is necessary for the survival of the people on multiple scales and through multiple temporal dimensions that complicate these sort of standard epistemologies of progress, right? That might be contingent on individual ownership and exploitation of a given resource. But what she helps us to understand, and it's important, this kind of gendered analysis, because Garifuna women have a very particular relationship to the land. If we're talking about the gender division of labor within Garifuna communities, women are typically responsible for sowing and harvesting crops. And so there's ways in which this relationship uh, that she is speaking to gets articulated through social, cultural, and economic practices. The harvesting of foods that are essential to Garifuna diet and subsistence is, of course, necessary for the the ability of, of Garifuna households to sustain themselves. If you don't have access to those lands, if you cease to cultivate the lands in the way of the ancestors as she describes it, then you potentially don't have a way to continue subsisting within that place. And so there was this really interesting um, and powerful way in which she makes these connections and kind of threads them together and that I felt compelled to to share in, in um, in the text. And I think also for me, um, as a woman who is involved um, in midwifery and also as a woman that participates in these kind of ancestral practices around the cultivation of the land, and also as a woman that participates in land recuperation and land defense strategies, I thought she was a, 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 a person that would really allow the reader a window into to these worlds. And, and so I appreciate you bringing that, um, that particular vignette up. Yes, she absolutely does. And thanks so much for sharing that with uh, your readers. Um, on another note, you know, to me, The Ends of Paradise tells a story not only about the Garifuna in Triumpho, but about indigenous politics across and beyond Honduras. And you alluded to that earlier to our conversation. And to me, you know, your chapter about court cases really brought this into clear view. So how do land defenders mobilize indigeneity in their legal struggles? And what are the possibilities and limits of making claims on indigeneity in courtrooms? Yes, this is a really important part of the book, and it's the focus of the final chapter. Um, You know, I didn't anticipate that I would uh, 
write about this when I started the research and then it became such a big part. I myself was a little bit skeptical about some of the the anthropological work around, you know, rights and indigenous rights in particular. Um, and, and I knew though that it was a very important channel of struggle for Garifuna activists. So what is important for me to note here is that Garifuna, of course, are participating in activism, legal activism, through their uh, engagement with the juridical system and with courts. But they're also engaged in all sorts, in all sorts of activism and land defense strategies at other scales of, of struggle um, that aren't happening within courtrooms, that are happening on the streets in Tegucigalpa, the capital of Honduras, that are happening within the community when they do these land recuperation or land rescue missions. They call it rescate territorial. Um, but I couldn't ignore, and I, I, a lot of my work focuses on that, on the rescate territorial, the land rescue missions, um, the, the work of kind of reclaiming lands that have been privatized the work of pushing back against uh, municipal authorities and and Tela. But I couldn't ignore the importance of these legal battles as well. And indigeneity becomes a really important formation for those legal struggles. Um, I wouldn't say that Garifuna are simply strategically mobilizing indigeneity to make claims to land. I would contest that I would say that Garifuna very deeply identify again as both Black and Indigenous. And that was something that was made clear to me throughout the course of, of my research there. I spent, you know, over two years doing ethnographic work uh, in Trimpo de la Cruz and in some of the other Garifuna communities. But when it comes to making these legal claims against the state, indigeneity becomes really salient. And again, part of the reason for that is related to what we were talking about earlier in our conversation, in which Garifuna are sort of positioned as Black and not Indigenous. And they are positioned as usurpers of the lands that they claim as their ancestral territory. Because, of course, the thinking is that Blackness is exterior to the nation, that Blackness is not Indigenous, that these are two mutually exclusive categories of identification. And Garifuna are saying, no, we're Black and Indigenous, and there is a whole legal apparatus and legal convention, such as Convention 169 of um, the International Convention 169, that protects the collective rights of Indigenous and tribal peoples. And that becomes a really important legal instrument for Garifuna when they're making claims to their lands and claims against the state for its complicity in the violation of their collective property rights. So Garifuna are bringing those cases to national courts and to international courts, international courts such as the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. And indigeneity is a crucial racial formation around which those claims are being made. I think um, that puts them, of course, into dialogue with other indigenous movements 
throughout the Americas, the jurisprudence within the inter-American system pertaining to the rights of indigenous peoples is therefore also pertinent and relevant to the rights and struggles of the Garifuna people. And the outcome of those legal battles becomes jurisprudence that has implications for the indigenous peoples of the Americas much more broadly. So there is a, this, this concept uh, of indigeneity is very, very important uh, for those legal struggles in particular. And it is also a really important means by which Garifuna enter into international political spaces and politics of contestation against state actors, but also international actors like the World Bank. There was this really fascinating moment in which Garifuna brought a case against the the World Bank. Through The the World Bank has this uh, mechanism called the inspection panel, and they brought a case to the uh, World Bank's inspection panel saying that one of the projects uh, that the World Bank was promoting supposedly to support the, the, the rights of indigenous and black peoples of, in Honduras was actually counter to their rights and to their kind of sovereign uh, political formations, the, the means by which decisions and political decisions in particular are made within those communities were being violated by this World Bank policy. And so they brought this complaint to the inspection panel as an indigenous people And the inspection panel report actually found that the World Bank didn't follow proper protocol in the implementation of this particular policy and their support for uh, property law, which Garifuna were very much opposed to. So we see again that indigeneity becomes really important, not just in national legal battles, but in international legal battles and international or or transnational global politics of contestation. Wow, that is fascinating. Thanks for sharing that, Chris. And, you know, you told us about the role of courtrooms for indigenous politics, and I'm curious about your role in these courtrooms. Um, You know, you allude to you serving as an expert witness, um, and you also published a piece in American Anthropologist about that. So to mirror my previous question, can you speak to the possibilities and limits of witnessing as an anthropologist and as a political ally? Yes, this is, this is, <laughs> a, this is a question that I have grappled with for quite a long time. And thank you for- <laughs> Thank you for asking it, and thank you for pointing to the uh, American Anthropologist special section as well, uh, which I uh, we published in 2020 with Mariana Mora and Aida Hernandez Castillo. So, you know, the question is is really relevant to anthropology today, I would say. Anthropologists are being called on increasingly to serve as experts in court cases at, in national and international courts. And um, we have a real role to play within those juridical spaces and processes. Anthropologists have a unique way, of course, of approaching questions around culture and cultural practice. And that is something that the court deems to be important when adjudicating cases pertaining to indigenous people's rights. And specifically, um, in, in this case, to indigenous people's rights to land. And so... When I was initially asked to serve as an expert, I felt conflicted uh, 
um, in part because I had some very serious reservations about the efficacy of legal strategies to achieve transformative political change. But I also knew that I had to say yes. I had to say yes because serving as an expert was part of my political commitment and allyship that I had established with the Garifuna communities where I had worked for years. And so I entered into this role somewhat hesitantly, <laughs> um, and, and it ended up being a really fascinating experience. So I served, I had two, in, with, with Garifuna cases, subsequently I've actually done a lot of work um, in U.S. immigration court with Honduran asylum seekers as an expert. But with this project in particular, I served as an expert in the case of Punta Piedra and its members against the state of Honduras. And this Punta Piedra is one of the Garifuna communities. There are about 46 Garifuna communities along the Caribbean coast and in the Bay Islands in Honduras and, of course, others in Nicaragua and Belize and Guatemala and many Garifuna in the U.S. as well. But I'm focusing here, of course, on Honduras. And um, and I also wrote an amicus brief for the case of Triunfo de la Cruz and its members against the state of Honduras. Now, the struggles that were being waged in both these places were both struggles over land and conflicts over land and the state's role in the dispossession or privatization of lands that Garifuna claimed as their ancestral territory. And, and so they were related struggles, but there were kind of different actors involved because in Punta Piedra, what you had was um, state policies that had led to a mestizo colonization frontier within the community. So essentially the state incentivized mestizo peasants to move into the lands that Garifuna claimed as their ancestral territory. And the way that they did this was by saying, and this is a very old tactic, was by saying, you can take the lands if they're, quote unquote, unused. And there was this idea that because Garifuna were not necessarily using actively the lands that were settled, that those mestizo peasants had the right to the lands. They were so-called idle lands. And Garifuna contested that and said, well, no, they appear to be idle to you because of your own understandings of land use and how productivity should be expressed through infrastructure, through agriculture, et cetera. But our lands and our land use practices are distinct, you know, and they had this practice of kind of shifting agricultural production, which again, is not exclusive to Garifuna people. But the practice is essentially you work an area of land for a number of years, let's say five years, and then after that period, you let the land lay fallow and replenish its nutrients. And this is one way in which Garifuna care for the land and make sure that the land will continue to be productive in the future. You let that land lay fallow for 15, 20 years. Well, of course, when these peasant groups started moving into the area and they saw these so-called you know, idle lands that were fallow, they thought they therefore had a right to take the lands and put them to productive use in the ways that the state deemed to be productive. So that was one very um, important conflict and sort of 
a very brief synopsis of how it played out in Punta Piedra. Whereas in Chumpo de la Cruz, again, the main culprit was tourism because of the Telebay tourism project and and the the kind of very rapid pace in which tourism was being developed throughout that region of the country. And again, it was leading to the the usurpation and dispossession of Garifuna uh, lands. So, you know, it was a very interesting experience in part because I wrote the amicus brief for Trumfo's case first, and then I was invited to serve as an expert for Punta Piedra's case. And when I was first proposed as expert for the case by the lawyer representing Punta Piedra, the Honduran uh, attorney general essentially said, no, this guy can't participate as an expert because he's an activist. And you can look at his research record. He claims to be an activist researcher. He's a, a positioned, politically aligned researcher. And therefore, he really can't provide an unbiased account. And I, I had to write a you know rebuttal uh, that the court eventually um, you know conceded and allowed me to to participate as an expert. And I essentially said, no, I've done my research all these years in accordance with the norms of of anthropological research. And anthropology is shifting. And one of the ways that it's shifting is that we're increasingly saying that we're we're doing work in a politically engaged manner. Uh, and that is responding to particular political questions and provocations from the people that we're in dialogue with or our so-called interlocutors. And so, I, I you know, it was a fascinating experience. Ultimately, uh, in October 2015, the court issued its decision in favor of the communities, both Trumpo de la Cruz and Punta Piedra, basically saying that the state was indeed complicit in the violation of the community's collective property rights. And it was a huge victory, one that we should absolutely celebrate. But I also say this with a little bit of caution, because one of the things I learned in doing this work and also in reviewing and studying the court's uh, sentence for both cases is that there, there are real limitations right? And this is what you're asking about, the possibilities and limits, right? There are real limitations to what can be accomplished vis-a-vis these international legal battles. Um, And also real limitations to my role as an expert, as an anthropological expert. For one, I can't really capture in a very short affidavit the complexities of the political and cultural processes that I've spent over a decade studying, right? So we're trained to do this, you know, in the Geertian way, big description, very complex and nuanced analyses. But when you're doing an affidavit, you have to take all of that complexity and put it into a very short form. And that's not easy to do. And you're doing so in a way that could, I felt in my case, end up reiterating perhaps these hardened notions of what it means to be indigenous or these kind of culturally essentialist notions of what it means to be indigenous. Because I talk about this very unique relationship that Garifuna have to their land. And that can be misconstrued, I think. Um, And then with regard to the actual legal implications, 
yes, the state was found to be complicit in their in the violation of these rights, but ultimately we're talking about the inter-American Court of Human Rights. This is an interstate system for the Americas. The states within that system are the primary actors. The court has a vested interest, I would say, in upholding the sovereignty of the states. And ultimately is the state that must have the political will to address the sentence and the reparations called for in the sentence. What we see so far in the case of Honduras is that the state has not responded hardly at all to that sentence, which was issued in 2015. Here we are seven, eight years later, and we're still waiting for a concrete response to those uh, sentences and to the reparations called for. And if there's not enough political will, how do you get the state to do that? In addition to that, what we see is that, for instance, Garifuna claims that were articulated in terms of cultural difference, like claims to lands that were articulated in cultural difference, where that relationship between land and culture could be explicitly framed as such, those get legible as legitimate rights claims before the Inter-American Court. But what about the claims that they made around maritime rights, for instance? These are coastal communities. Maritime resources are really important for their subsistence practices. Those rights were not recognized by the court because it too forcefully challenged the sovereignty of the state. States have maritime rights, not communities. So that's one issue. Another one was with these reservas. Garifuna held large expanses of land in what they called reservas or reserves. And these lands were held for future population growth. The ancestors knew that the community would continue to grow and that their children would need places to live and to expand and to put their homes or establish their agricultural fields. But reservas did not fit within the cultural logics that were necessary to attain rights within that sort of framework. And so there are real limitations as well, um, but we cannot deny the import of these legal decisions. And it was, it was a huge success for Ofrane, for the two communities um, that I mentioned, Chumpo de la Cruz and Punta Piedra. Well, what a rich response, Chris. And, you know, I love how, you know, in a way you also show us how to work through skepticism throughout fieldwork and throughout, you know, um, political work like witnessing. So that's that's really wonderful. Um, yeah, keeping with the issue of methodology, um, something that really resonated with me came from your collaborator Cesar and his critiques of anthropophagos, knowledge cannibals in disguise of researchers. And I can't think of, I don't know, a better metaphor um, for some researchers I have witnessed <laughs> during my fieldwork in Istanbul. Um, so... You know, thinking with Cesar, I want to ask you, how did your collaborators provoke you to design or rethink your methodology? And, you know, you already showed us a little bit how they pushed us to maybe rethink, uh, pushed you maybe to rethink, you know, what courtrooms can do. But I'm wondering um, if you could speak more to the broader project. 
Yes, um, thank you for that question. I, I feel very fortunate actually to have worked with people like Cesar and with Ofrane, the Black Fraternal Organization of Honduras. It was not always an easy path. Certainly when I first got to Honduras um, as a master's student uh, in 2005, so this, of course, I went first in 2003 as an activist and then in 2005 when I was doing my master's research and working collaboratively with the Caribbean and Central America Research Council in Ofrane on a large study to substantiate their collective rights claims. Um, I went down um, with certain ideas, I guess, romantic ideas of what I could do as an ally, as a politically engaged researcher. Again, I had been there as an activist previously, um, but I was taught very quickly to not take for granted or make any assumptions about what allyship can be and is in a context of really significant and high stakes political struggles. And so Cesar was one of these people that was constantly pushing me and questioning me when I got there. I got there and I was like, oh, you know, I'm in, I'm, I'm in alignment with this struggle. I'm in alignment with the Garifuna struggle to defend their collective property rights. But saying that and the practice of being involved in that work as a researcher are two very different things. And Cesar was one of these individuals that was really saying, you need to seriously think about your positionality in relation to this struggle and question your training as an anthropologist, as a U.S.-based anthropologist, as a U.S.-based anthropologist from an elite U.S. institution. So there were so <laughs> many layers, you know? And it was also about thinking through my training and my position in relation to a longer history of U.S. intervention in Latin America and in Central America in particular, where, you know, the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, had a very outsized presence during revolutionary movements uh, there, you know, decades previous uh, to my arrival. And so, you know, he was asking me really to engage with anthropology's articulation with and participation in imperial and colonial projects of domination and to question my positionality. I think I did take for granted a little bit at the beginning that I was someone that had worked in Honduras as an activist previously, that I was, uh, yes, from the United States, but I'm a scholar of color, so positioned differently. And I knew after talking with him and hearing his critiques and this form, this, this very, very smart uh, metaphor of the anthropophago, the, the knowledge cannibal in disguise as a researcher, that I needed to step back and really, really examine my position from a much more critical perspective and to take the time that was necessary to establish uh, a relationship of, of confianza or, or, or trust with the people that I was working with at, uh, at Ofrane and in the Garifuna communities themselves. And so, you know, Subsequent to, to the, that conversation with Cesar, I was reminded again and again with my work with Ofrane, um, you know, about, you know, the, the research that I was doing 
the knowledge that was to come out of that research, the findings, the theoretical contributions. I can't take sole credit for any of that. All of that work was done in conversation with my friends and colleagues in Honduras. A lot of what I was able to say in the book grew out of those engagements, out of those conversations, out of those debates, out of collective thinking uh, that we did together over the course of nearly a decade. And so uh, I'm very, very thankful to have worked with um, people like Cesar, with Ofrane, with my colleagues in Trumpo de la Cruz, and for their constant pushing. They're, they're pushing me to try and be a more ethical and a more politically nuanced thinker and researcher. Well, I'm very glad that they did that. And I'm very glad that, you know, through you, we also get to learn from them. Um, so it seems fitting to end by talking about the future when we're talking about a book around the politics of the future. So my last question is, what is next for you? What are some new projects, questions, or even courses that you're working on currently? Yes, indeed, there, there's a, a, a new project that I'm starting to work on um, this year, actually, in uh, Puerto Rico. Uh, I'll be doing a project around race, climate, and geographies of loss in coastal regions of Puerto Rico. And um, I'm very interested in regions of the island uh, that are historically Black regions of, of, of Puerto Rico. Um, the southern coast, which was once um, the location of, uh, of the sugar industry uh, in Puerto Rico, uh, but also the northeastern region of the island. These are also regions of the island that have been signaled as some of the most vulnerable to the effects of climate change. And they are extremely important ecologically because of the estuaries and the particular physical geographic um, characteristics. But this work actually is very much informed by the work that I did in Honduras. Uh, Again, the work I did in Honduras is work that I'm carrying with me into all of my future research engagements having worked in coastal communities in Honduras, having been in dialogue with Garifuna, not only about their political struggles and their land defense strategies, but also by virtue of living there during some uh, very difficult uh, environmental events or climate events. I, I know that this is very much on the mind of people in those communities as it is in these regions of Puerto Rico where I'm planning to to do my next project. And so the question of the future looms large when we're talking about climate, when we're talking about environment. You know, what futures are possible in this particular conjuncture, environmental and political and economic conjuncture? And I think these are questions that, again, people in these coastal communities are grappling with, even if they're not necessarily using the language of climate or using the language of science, right? So what are the kind of concepts and what is the way in which they are theorizing this moment? And what can we learn from that theorization? Um, I, I also thought about 
teaching a course. I won't be teaching for the next year, but I am interested in teaching a course called Environmental Futures. And again, the you know what futures are possible is one of the questions that would motivate the reading selections for that course. Uh, I think there's a lot happening within anthropology around environment and around climate. And the reason why, of course, is because it's very urgent. Um, these are very urgent issues that um, are facing us collectively and that we must grapple with and we must take seriously the experiences and the concepts that people in these frontline communities are developing and deploying to deal with these challenges and perhaps to propose alternatives. What alternatives and what futures are potentially possible if we take those perspectives and those theories seriously? So that's something that I I hope I can get into a bit uh, with this work in Puerto Rico and, and of course, I'm hoping to also return to Honduras to do, to do a, a, a third project. Um, that's something I, I very much want to do. So that's, that's more or less some thoughts on where I'm headed. Wow, these are really fascinating. I'm really excited for your future students at CUNY who will take this class. And yeah, I'm excited for these new projects. Hopefully we'll have you back on the podcast when those are done. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) Well, thank you very much, Chris, for joining us and for your insights. Thank you very much. I'm really thankful for the invitation and for your really wonderful questions. The pleasure is all mine. I'm your host, Aliza Arjan. This discussion of the ends of paradise, race, extraction, and the struggle for black life in Honduras, published by Stanford University Press, is brought to you by the Anthropology Channel of the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.